Hi, Mary. How are you doing? Pretty well, thanks, Dan. Pretty well. You've had a quite a long journey recently, haven't you? Have you made it home yet? I have made it home. Yes, I have made it home. Thanks, Mary. Yeah, it's quite a long journey back from our Winchester office back home to where I live in Hertfordshire. I came down there to visit you and a number of the team last week. It was a really nice trip, actually. Really enjoyed that. Excellent. And I've possibly mentioned before that my journey to the Winchester office is pretty short. Slightly different days we had, didn't we, last week? But so you came to the office the first time you'd been, I think. What was your kind of first impression? I mean, it is very nice. I know you're all very proud of it. I've seen a lot of photos <laughs> on LinkedIn. Other people probably have as well. It is nice. It's, I suppose, for listeners' benefit, it's, I think it's a building that LCP have been in for a while, isn't it? I think it's about a third of our people are based there, I think, something like that. Recently had quite an extensive refit, basically. So fully fitted, very nice looking new office and seems to be getting quite well used. There was a really good amount of, of the team there in the office, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the trend is changing kind of week to week, but generally it seems pretty popular. And that's nice because I think that with the new kind of hybrid way of working, you need your office to be a bit of a destination, I think. So hopefully that's what we've achieved in that office, at least. People want to come in. It was a good incentive to people to go back, wasn't it, I think? When did the refurb actually get completed? It was sort of September-ish. It was around about when... Yeah, it was very well timed. It was so I think the doors first opened in mid July, mid to late July, and then it was a kind of I guess a bit of a sort of bedding in period over the summer, and then our new working policy came in in September, didn't it? So, by which point I think most people had made it in at least once, so they kind of knew the ropes a little bit. But yeah, I mean, we're all getting used to the desk booking system and the room booking system in both offices. I guess COVID driven, but we were already hot desking, so it's a good way of making sure you know what desk you're going to each day. The desk booking system seemed to work pretty well. I have to say the room booking system, which involved those very fancy looking iPads on each room, a little bit less so because if it seemed like some people were maybe not using the booking system to its fullest, shall we say, and, and just kind of <laughs> taking over rooms. I was frantically trying to find a room that I booked to do my calls from. But there you go. Don't dob in the people that were using your rooms illegally because, yeah, they're definitely supposed to be booking them. There was one type of room that was notably not there, wasn't there, Dan? That we can use. I keep saying that a live podcast studio room should just, of course, be part of every modern office refit, I think. I say that only slightly jokingly because the obvious thing to do with me coming down there, I don't come down there very often and you and I don't meet up in person that often these days, but an obvious thing to do would have been to record a podcast episode. But of course, we're just not set up to do that live anymore because we do it remotely on laptops. And that one time that we tried to do it, it just didn't really work very well. It was tricky. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's funny. You end up, even if we're in the same office to record, you sit separately and try not to be able to hear each other because it's distracting. So Although we did start off, our first ever episode was recorded in person. So maybe one day we'll get back to that or get back to that being an option at least. We've recorded, what, four or five like that, where we sort of crowded around that little mic in a meeting, it feels like, an awfully long time ago. But I think the future is fully soundproofed podcasting rooms in the offices of the future. I think that's what we'll be seeing. I like it. I'll put in a good word. <laughs> Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. We were also reflecting on particularly my take on the difference between the London and Winchester offices. Clearly, both are full of great people. So I'm not going to make any comments about types of people working in each office. But the one thing that I had noticed actually on that was 
if I get into the office in Winchester at 8.30, most of the people that are going to be in that day are probably already there. And similarly, if I end up working a bit late, I'm often the only person in the office in the area that I work in. And then if I come into the London office, it's like the reverse, completely the reverse. So if I get into the London office for 8.30, very, very few people. Sometimes I'm the person that's sort of switching the lights on. But then if you work till seven, there's most people still or can be most people still there. So I thought that was very interesting that it's not necessarily different numbers of hours. It's just that the whole day gets shifted. And I'm not sure I've really got to the bottom of why that is, to be honest, apart from maybe shorter commutes in Winchester on average. So easier to get in early and then leave early and have more of an evening. Yeah, it was interesting. Well, we were chatting only about differences in working habits. There, it is interesting. I imagine the commute is a big part of it. It's hard to, if you don't have to be in the office at a certain time in the morning, it's harder in London to get there for say like an eight o'clock or something. It's always a bit more challenging, isn't it? I think as you made this point that there's more things going on in the evening in London, so there's more chance you might stay, go straight out to something else. I love these little observations on kind of general <laughs> office habits. Interesting, isn't it? I suppose it's sort of psychology in a sense, isn't it? So why do people act differently? But anyway, so Dan, you had a very long journey back home, but presumably that gave you a really good opportunity to catch up on what was going on in the world, particularly with COP26. Yes, it did. Exactly. I got through almost all of my podcast playlist, which I'd put together over the few days before. A lot of COP26 stuff. Obviously, that's been the big news of these two weeks. Just for listeners' benefit, we are planning to do at least one, maybe a couple of episodes chatting to people that we know who've actually been up there. So look out for that over the next few weeks. That's hopefully going to be really, really interesting. We aren't covering it in too much detail today. But yeah, it's been super interesting to follow it a little bit, trying to digest what the takeaways should be for investors and trying to keep colleagues up to speed on what's going on so we can answer questions. You've posted a fair bit on LinkedIn, Dan. You've obviously been listening to an even bigger number of podcasts than usual around this subject. And you've also done a few forums with groups of our clients. What would you say are the big takeaways for you so far? One thing that could end up being the big sort of positive from COP26 is how far the private sector has come and the level of commitment that's from the private sector. That was one thing that I kept saying going into it. I think we all knew that was there. And you've certainly seen that sort of come through that the private sector is really pushing hard. But again, as I've been trying to say to people, you have to think about the collaboration between the private and public sector, and you can't have one of those getting too far ahead of the other. So the question in my mind was almost, are governments going to put enough policy and clear regulation around this to actually enable the private sector to fulfill that? Because it has to be a bit of both. I think broadly, you have seen that come through. I mean, you saw the amount of net zero commitments by governments expand quite a lot. So that's pretty standard now. So that obviously gives asset owners who are making those kind of commitments that much more confidence that if the economy is decarbonized, on that same sort of schedule that their assets will be able to as well. So maybe it gives a bit more confidence to some of those asset owners that haven't committed to net zero themselves yet, that that will be something that they ought to be able to do sort of fairly clearly. And then other than that, it's quite interesting to think about some of the sectors that are sort of winners and losers. I don't know that you can say there's an awful lot, but obviously it's a lot being said about coal and fossil fuels more generally. So that's obviously a sector that's at the very leading edge of the transition. And it's clear that's well known, that's not new news. But I think it's just interesting to reflect on the potential speed that that transition might be taking place at. And is it going to be slightly faster or slower? Then the final point maybe is one scenario that we talk a lot with our clients about is a disorderly transition where there's a more abrupt policy action later this decade. And I suppose in a world where everyone wants to keep a one and a half degree scenario on the table, but the current commitments don't amount to that, basically. Maybe it gets a bit more likely we're going to see something disorderly a little bit later on. So that's one thing I've been thinking about as well. And on a slightly, I guess, lighter note, with the amount of coverage that 
we've been seeing on COP26, there's a fair number of sort of blunders that if you look for them, you'll find them probably all over the internet with people tripping on the way to stage, various people asleep, it looked like, and hopefully they're awake for the really important conversations and the really important commitments. But I guess it is a long and intense few weeks. So really looking forward to those episodes. In the meantime, let's get on with today's episode, which is more focused on digital currencies. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. This week, we wanted to go down a little bit of a different avenue, talking about investments and talk about digital currencies. For that conversation, we're delighted to welcome back LCP fund researcher, Nikki Matthews. Nikki, welcome back. Hi, Dan. It's good to be back. Hi, Nikki. Welcome. So as Dan said, you're a full-time researcher here at LCP, and I think you've given an overview of your role before. I suppose today's conversation will centre around some recent material that you sort of put out. I wondered if you could give a very quick overview of what that material was and kind of what drove you to produce it. So my recent article was on GovCoins, which is essentially, if you have heard of Bitcoin, you can call this Britcoin. So the UK government <laughs> is looking at... I see what you did there. I see what you did there. It's <laughs> clever. Good. I like it. Very good. <laughs> So the UK government's looking at launching its own digital currency, so the e-pound. They've launched a task force into that, so it will probably take a few years if they do go ahead with it. China's a lot further ahead with the e-yuan. They're actually doing trials on that at the moment. And I think the implications it has are quite wide-reaching. That was what the article covered. Fantastic. And I suppose we have spoken before about digital currencies on this show with, I think, Dan, was it February? We spoke with Joss North from Ruffer. Yes. Yeah, it was February, wasn't it? And it's, it's actually still our most popular ever episode. More downloads of that than any other one. And the content stands up pretty well, even today, in terms of the arguments that were being put forward. I think Bitcoin's been through about four different bull and bear market cycles since then. As Maybe it's ended up roughly the same place as it was back then. But regardless, I thought Joss gave one of the more thoughtful takes on it that I've heard. Kind of, It was neither a mega bullish sort of convicted take or a kind of mega bearish, just a load of rubbish take. It was quite balanced in the middle, kind of saying that they felt it was a substitute for gold, a digital, digital gold, and that it merited a small allocation in portfolios that Ruffer were quite open that they made that allocation and then, and then got rid of that allocation subsequently, having seen it done pretty well. That's interesting, but we were just discussing a second ago, weren't we? Is we haven't seen that theme, certainly in the UK, we haven't seen that theme really develop massively since then, have we? Yeah, I haven't seen it develop anywhere near as much as in, in other countries in terms of it being regulated. The UK regulators actually come down on the negative side of it. Which is really interesting, isn't it? Because obviously different regulators can take different positions, but you sort of expect, particularly in developed markets where markets operate relatively consistently between different markets, it's to me seems slightly unusual that different regulators are coming down quite so differently on this. Not to say that the UK government hasn't thought about this properly, but do you think it's an evolution of thought type thing? And there's just some countries that have really battled with that thought process a little bit more for a bit longer and got more comfortable? Or are there any particular aspects that have been pointed at as to why the UK is less comfortable than some other countries? I don't know the UK is less comfortable than all the others. I mean, the US is obviously one that gets a lot of focus because it's sort of a big driver of capital markets generally. And as far as I'm aware, cash Bitcoin is still an unregulated asset in the US. And ironically, Bitcoin futures are regulated, which is why the ETFs we've seen launched in the last couple of weeks focus on Bitcoin futures, not sort of cash Bitcoin. So the regulation in the US is kind of 
you might say in a similar-ish place, whereas I think you've seen a couple of European, I think Swedish and German, this is more fund regulators have been slightly more comfortable with sort of approving them. It's just different, isn't it? I don't know if it's as much as a philosophical difference or a sort of almost a view of the world type difference on it. But then you can also argue that there's a kind of even a bit of a competition among regulators, that if you're the one of the ones to embrace it, you get seen as being more forward-looking. And so there's a little bit of that. And I guess it comes down to probably personalities at the top of these regulators as well and deciding which way they want to fall on it. And I suppose, so Nikki, you just mentioned that you've not seen Bitcoin sort of picked up as much as in some other countries. And I suppose through the research that you do, particularly on sort of multi-asset type approaches, I guess, where there would be potentially the freedom to exploit that idea in the same way that Ruffa did previously. So you're not really seeing many other or having many other conversations along those lines with other managers at this point. That's right. We haven't seen it really feature in other multi-asset portfolios in the UK. I think the story is a bit different in the US. Dan, you just referenced the ETF launch in the last couple of weeks, and I understand it was particularly popular. Do you have a breakdown of kind of who is it popular with? Is it institutional investors that would be equivalent to some of our clients, or is it more of a retail play at this stage? I think I've probably listened to too many podcasts on this from the US <laughs> sources, but it's pretty popular on the retail investing side, I think. I mean, there's that quite well-known Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is one of the big, I think it's like a 40 billion trust. I think the fees are something like 2% or something. So nice little money spinner for someone, but that's been hugely popular. And that's frequently one of the most popularly traded stocks on Robinhood. So I'm told, not that I'm on Robinhood the whole time <laughs> checking out the most popularly traded stocks. But I mean, I might suggest that the retail crowd, particularly in the US, are quite into that. Absolutely. And open question, and maybe there isn't an easy answer to this. Clearly, Bitcoin has been an asset that people have been trading for some time just anyway. So do we have a feel for whether the people that are now trading it via the ETF are people that were trading it already, or is this expanding the market? I think it is a bit more institutional now in terms of going into the the ETF itself. Even before the ETF was launched, JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley were offering it to their high net worth clients, which is already moving towards the institutional space. So I think it will continue to grow there. That's definitely the argument for the ETF that would open it up to new potential investors. Other than that, you're setting up an account on Coin. Even the launch of Coinbase was seen as a big way of opening up a little bit more. Other than that, you were facing reasonably sort of fiddly process from what I understand to actually invest in it. Anyway, Nikki, having sort of chatted a little bit about Bitcoin, let's get back to Bitcoin. How should we think about the government digital currencies compared to Bitcoin? Are they anything like it or is it just a sort of completely different thing? It is similar in the sense that it might use technology like blockchain. It hasn't actually been determined yet. One thing the government are looking at is to hopefully try use something that's slightly more efficient, so better for the environment than using Bitcoin. But I think Bitcoin also has a bad reputation there in the sense that it's singled out, whereas a lot of other things are also bad for the environment. But to go back to your question, it's essentially planning to launch a currency that will, much like Bitcoin, you can use to pay for things, though this will be regulated. So you can literally convert it to the pound. And I think something that's important is that when you pay for something, it will be automatically cleared. So at the moment, where we're using credit cards or debit cards, usually it takes a few days for the cash to settle. So it's not as quick. So some liquidity constraints there. Transaction fees could potentially be a lot lower. How they're going to be paid for is yet to be determined. That could be in the form of of higher taxes as well. But it should offer cash to people that perhaps don't have access to it now. Not everyone has a bank account, for example, so they can't trade electronically. Could have 
consequences in terms of if you're abroad, you might be able to do transactions a lot more efficiently. I guess from the user perspective, it doesn't seem like a game changer. Is that being sort of harsh? I mean, it's kind of an alternative to a bank account type thing. It it seems like it's going to be relatively the same experience for a consumer, right? Is that fair? I think that that's fair. Yeah, if you do have a bank account, it's definitely fair. I think this just opens up the market a little bit more. But I think it does have consequences potentially for banks because obviously they might not be needed quite as much as they are now. Sounds like it, yeah. And I think that does have quite wide-reaching consequences. I mean, if the government does end up fully controlling currency, then essentially they might be able to track exactly what you're spending each of the digital currencies on. In the case of China, there are rumors that they could prohibit you using that cash on certain things. So your transaction could automatically be declined as you go to use it. Another interesting thing that I read is that in China, some of the trials they're doing, they're putting an expiry date on some of the digital currency. So that could give central banks another mechanism to control money supply other than, say, using interest rates. You could just put expiry dates or, I guess, conversely, you could issue cash that you can't use until a certain date if you wanted to slow down, say, spending. Yeah, I heard some of the stimulus in Singapore or somehow had been done that way recently that they wanted to give a stimulus direct to people, but had an expiry date on it. That's obviously quite a good way of ensuring that your stimulus money actually gets into the economy. And I guess having people have a current account at the central bank is a good way of distributing stimulus cash in the first place. Otherwise, it is a little bit harder. That was one of the practical issues that I think they ran up against a year and a half ago, that how do you actually get money to people quickly? It sounds stupid, but not as easy as you think. As I'm sort of listening to both of you speak just then, it feels like there's a very fundamental question here, isn't there, in terms of there is a lot more control that the state could have under this new approach than they have under the current approach. And in some cases, that's really good because presumably you can pretty much eliminate the black market if everything goes through this sort of centralised approach. But telling people when they can and when they can't spend money that's supposedly their money feels to me as a sort of newcomer to that idea quite uncomfortable. So I can imagine there's a very big debate going on at the moment. Nikki, you said, and of course, some of the examples you just referred to were in relation to China, and you said that they're a lot further ahead in their thinking. Clearly, the way that their state operates is different to many economies in the world. I guess, particularly given your comment around banks, do we know whether there's been any reaction from, for example, Chinese banks, where this is now being trialed in a sort of defensive way because presumably there are things they might be able to do to try and somehow still be involved in that I don't know involved in that market in some way that means they don't lose all of their business yeah I haven't seen that much on it but they are also trying to reduce Alibaba's market share which is another app that you can use to make payments so I think there are quite interesting consequences I mean obviously China's cracked down more generally on crypto currency and so I think if you take it a step further moving away from the banks, then there's that question of who will provide lending. Will that be done directly by the central bank? And that also increases significantly the power that I guess any central bank would have in terms of giving loans. So I think it's one to watch. That's the kind of ironic thing in all of this, isn't it? Because from what I sort of understand, one of the reasons for government digital currencies being looked at is as a pushback against a move towards people embracing cryptocurrencies effectively as a means of exchange, a way of avoiding that happening is to have a government currency. But of course, one of the big arguments for cryptocurrencies is to get away from a system that's controlled by central banks. That's kind of like core to the mindset, isn't it, of people who love crypto is this idea that 
the central bank system is somehow flawed, basically has all these massive issues. And so you want to have your money sort of outside it, whereas government digital currencies are doing exactly the opposite, which is moving to a system that's much more controllable by a central bank. So it could, sort of doesn't quite stack up that logic. Does it? I don't know if I've seen anyone close off that loop, but yeah, it's kind of how it is, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's one of the reasons they are looking at it as well, because if you have sort of private currencies like Bitcoin taking off, then you potentially go away from regulation quite significantly. Nikki, you mentioned that the government is investigating more efficient ways of using something equivalent to blockchain technology. Do you have any details on, of course, that is one of the big criticisms of Bitcoin is the amount of energy consumption that it involves. And I take your point that there are lots of assets globally that have lots of energy consumption attached to them. But with Bitcoin in the spotlight, what are the approaches that are more efficient or could be more efficient? So Ethereum, which is another cryptocurrency, uses more efficient technology. So that could be something to be explored. I think the great thing is that they're at the start of the process, so they can basically develop it any way that they choose rather than necessarily start with something that already exists. And I suppose that's the really interesting thing, isn't it? Bitcoin is potentially in its heyday now because it could very quickly become outdated because new technology that's more efficient effectively overtakes it. And particularly people focused on energy and the energy transition actually feel that Bitcoin isn't the right thing for them anymore. Yeah, definitely. I think it's just got a massive first mover advantage. And the other thing with Bitcoin is that its supply is limited to 21 million, which it hasn't quite reached yet. But for example, Ethereum's isn't. So in terms of some potential characteristics it could have, like an inflation hedge, that's something that Bitcoin provides, whereas Ethereum doesn't. That was one of the key points that Joss made, actually, back in when we spoke to him. He was saying the way that Bitcoin is developing, it's much more looking like a version of gold rather than a new version of the dollar. In other words, it's not very helpful for actually buying and selling stuff because that's always been a pain to do and it's still not done very much. Whereas as a store of value is kind of where the argument is, which is kind of interesting because that's not where the arguments came to begin with. And that's not where the government digital currency argument is. That's more a medium of exchange. And maybe that goes back to the point that the sort of technological point around how that's evolved into being a less efficient technology than some of these other ones. To me, what feels a little uncomfortable, I guess, is if Bitcoin is taking off a little bit in the US. And in a sense, it could be seen as sort of going against the US dollar. And it doesn't seem that that's being particularly well regulated. So I think it's other places that are looking into government central currencies. I think it's the right thing to do in that sense that it protects existing currencies. It's a defensive move effectively by central banks to try and protect their monopoly, some would say, over currencies. We've talked a fair bit, I suppose, about China in terms of the more central currency UK. Are there any other countries that are quite far through their thought process on this? You mentioned some parts of Europe, I think. So I think Sweden is quite far advanced in terms of fintech and it has similar applications where you can already pay using apps or other methods. I think the, the most extreme one that I saw is where you can get an implant in your finger and use that to pay for transactions as well. So I think countries are definitely further along, but in terms of actually launching their currency, I think China has actually done the trials and no one else has gotten that far. Taking a step back from the practicalities of a digital currency, I mean, what do you think it tells us about the future of money, if you like? What does the world look like in, say, I don't know, 10, 20 years' time? Does it fundamentally change the nature of money? I think it's an interesting question because the nature of money's changed so many times. And I think we, to some extent, live in our own bubble that we've only experienced having fiat money. But if you go back, I think the gold standard was 
the previous regime, and that was only really abandoned in the 30s in the UK, so not really that long ago. Fiat money only really started last century in itself. Can we jargon bust there, fiat money? So fiat money is money that's not backed by any asset. Before it would have been backed by gold, so you could convert your paper money into gold at any point in time. At the moment, it's our trust in the system, really, that keeps it going around, which is why I think there is potential for these digital currencies to overtake the system, because as long as people trust that they're effective, obviously security would need to be very high there. I think it could completely change. I mean, at some point we were even using shells to pay for transactions. That was more than a thousand years ago now. But I think what is accepted is what people are willing to use. It's a good point, isn't it? It, it all comes down to trust and the nature of trust and whether is the nature of trust changing, I suppose. Sounds like a bit of a philosophical question, but I guess in a digital world, it kind of is. And so it makes sense that the money might change as well. On a much less philosophical note, actually, I was just observing recently that, of course, back when I was a kid, cash, physical cash was much more commonplace than it is now. And of course, you get your pocket money and you could put it in your piggy bank sort of thing. And it was a lovely physical representation of money, which helped you to learn about money. But of course, for my little boy who's one year old, it's kind of possible that he's not going to see much physical cash. I guess kids growing up these days are just not. And an interesting question as to what that means for how you learn about money and how you think about it. So it's kind of open-ended question, really, but it's going to be different. That is very interesting, isn't it? There's probably a lot of things that we had growing up that took me back to the episode we recorded with Stuart McKinnon, Dan, early last year, and he was talking about the 30-year career, 30-plus year career that he'd sort of lived through. And I think we were reminiscing on things like when you take a photo with an iPhone and it makes the shutter sound, and we know it's a shutter sound because we remember cameras that had shutters, and kids growing up these days might just know it makes that sound but not really know why. It was just making me wonder whether you talk about money with Leo and you use kind of counters to represent money, but <laughs> we're actually sees the coins that they represent, probably. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because if the future generations grow up not really feeling physical money, then the trust that they have in the virtual system and the trust they have in the current money system, to the naked eye, there's no difference to that, which I guess, to Dan's point just earlier about how to the user, there's probably not very much difference if we converted to more of a sort of virtual money system. So it's where that tipping point is. To generalise, I suspect there's lots of people in the older generations that would really struggle to move fully to a virtual money system. But actually, as time goes on, the number of people in that position probably reduces, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think it's less than 20% of people use cash today. So that's already very low. I think that will only continue to decrease, really. And it's interesting. So you mentioned that a virtual money system might be more accessible because there are some people that don't currently have a bank account. And I guess increasingly, the global population does have access to the internet. But to have a virtual money system, do we need everyone in the world to have access to the internet in some way? And do we therefore have a risk that things move ahead and there are people that this excludes? I don't really understand the technology well enough to know the answer to that question. Potentially. I mean, it depends what the technology ends up looking like. It could be something similar to a debit card as well, in which case you probably wouldn't need the internet. It could be an app on your phone, in which case you would definitely need a phone. It depends what they look like. I think these are all good considerations as well. I mean, another one is just the strength of security that they will need because, I mean, at the moment, if a bank is hacked, you have limited consequences. But if you manage to hack an entire economy's money supply, that could have very serious consequences. So sort of cyber risk becomes very important. I suppose it is already very important because everyone internet banks, but like you say, it's currently spread across a number of banks, I guess, if you think about the global population or just the UK population even. 
Nikki, changing gears a little, just taking a massive step back, you do a lot of research work across a lot of strategies. What are some things that you're going to be looking at a bit more over the next 12 months? Doesn't have to be anything related to cryptocurrencies, but just in the whole realm of alternative assets and those sort of things. What are a couple of things that are kind of interesting you at the moment? We're looking at insurance link securities at the moment. Again, their premiums went up a little bit following Hurricane Ida a few months ago. So it might be an attractive time to allocate to it the renewal season opens early next year. So offering quite attractive returns, but also a very market neutral asset. So it gives you very good diversification benefits, which could be useful for investors in the coming months. Yeah, that is interesting. I've looked at that a couple of times before myself for clients over the years, and it does tend to be quite cyclical, doesn't it? Where the premiums sort of coming out and, and contracting back in again. It is one asset class where the, you sort of got to choose your entry point a little bit. It is, but it's one where I think if you have a strategic asset allocation over time, it's very useful for its diversification benefits. Your returns might fluctuate a bit, and I think you'll need to hold it if you do experience a catastrophe event in your portfolio. But it's useful to have long term, I, I would say. What are some of the things you're looking out for there? What are some of the characteristics of the funds or the assets that you're looking at? As we look at global diversified funds, diversified in terms of risk as well as far as possible, because then even if you do have an event, it's likely to be a really small proportion of the portfolio. And you're looking at, is it all weather and what kind of sort of perils are they covering? So they typically mostly cover wind, I would say, so hurricane risk, but a few of the funds also include fire and flood, very rarely flood, actually, I would say. Nikki, when you're looking at these sort of, I guess, slightly more nuanced ideas, and particularly ones where perhaps entry point or perhaps point in the market cycle make it more or less attractive. Do you have a sort of very high level, simple framework that you can apply to kind of any asset type that you're looking at in terms of, do we classify this as a reasonable asset that could be held by our clients? Is there that sort of framework that you can share with us? We definitely came up with one for Bitcoin. I wouldn't say we have the same one for every asset. And what was the Bitcoin one, just at a very high level? So in terms of Bitcoin, we concluded that it's not an asset to include in portfolios at present because it doesn't produce income, which was one of the features we were looking for. It doesn't really have value. So a commodity does have value. For example, like gold, you can use it to make something. It was unregulated at the time that we looked at it, but obviously that's changed a little bit in some countries. The US just launching an ETF. You also can't really use it to pay for everything just yet. So it's not widely accepted for transactions. So it can't really be a currency. Even if it were a currency, investors don't usually invest directly in a currency. That's a very neat little framework that helps us to retest our position on Bitcoin from time to time. Yeah, because I mean, it may evolve and at some point it could be a proper financial asset. And that's the point that we as advisors need to keep ourselves honest on, isn't it? I guess over time is checking whether we're the ones who are sort of being slow to get it. I like that framework. I think that's really helped me in terms of understanding what constitutes an asset class and what doesn't. And I think that's been helpful in me making the argument to clients of why we're looking at certain things and not others. You need to have that kind of level of rigor there, don't you? So Nikki, in terms of, I suppose, either other examples of current research or kind of what's on your agenda for the next 12 months or less than 12 months, if that's a bit long to ask you for? In terms of multi-asset, we're looking at how managers are positioning their portfolios and there are some differences there, which are quite interesting, very much depending on whether you think a market crashes due to come or not. In terms of new ideas, we've looked at carbon credits as well. It's a market that did exist, or still exists, but I think more than 10 years ago, it was quite hot and then crashed. But 
in its current form is significantly more regulated, buying carbon credits could be a tactical investment in the sense that their price should really increase if we are to meet the net zero commitments. But on the other hand, it is a market that has crashed in the past and therefore it's difficult to say whether there could be some other technology that is introduced and therefore there's not that much need to invest in carbon credits. And so at the moment, we wouldn't recommend an investment, but it's something that we are researching. Good. Okay. Well, plenty there to keep you busy, Nikki. As we're starting to wrap up, what would you say is one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this whole episode? I think it's worth thinking what is the norm time. So digital currency, I think, is now becoming the norm I guess, monitoring the implications that that will have for investors' portfolios. It could make some sectors that they're currently invested in more attractive, some less attractive. So I think ensuring that their portfolios are up to date on new developments in digital. I really like that, Nikki. So I guess the message is look out for the new ideas, but also think about how the new ideas affect your current ideas. So not reflecting that is also a decision in itself, if you like. Great. And Nikki, what would you say, we've probably asked you this question before, so it's a bit unfair, but we're going to ask you again. What would you say is the most underappreciated thing about investing in your view? I think last time I said rebalancing, which I might stick to. Doubling up on rebalancing. I like (laughs) it. Strong conviction there. Just to expand on that a little bit then. So you think the benefits of rebalancing are underappreciated? Yeah, I think so. I think it's also perhaps not looked at as much. So you might not rebalance as frequently as you should and therefore lose out a little bit on some enhanced returns that rebalancing offers. Good. Okay, fine. And last of all, then, any current recommendations, things you're reading, listening to? So on behavioral finance, Think Again by Adam Grant. And in that book, Think Again, what is it that we're encouraged to think again about? So I think it challenges the reader to challenge themselves on what they see as the norm and to just really evaluate why you see things a certain way and how someone else might see them. Fantastic. Sounds like the sort of book that makes you a better person. So yeah, good recommendation. Potentially. (laughs) It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation this week, Nikki. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Nikki, for joining us. That's it this week on Investment Uncut. But do join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.